Hey, what's going on, everybody? This your boy, Jay Mace, with another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have an MC, hip-hop aficionado. We're going to chop it up about different styles of music, hip-hop from all around, all that and more with my main man, Source, from the podcast, Source & Company. Source, what's going on, brother? And welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. What up, bro? How you feeling? Thanks for having me on. Man, I'm feeling good, man. I appreciate you taking the time out to come on, chop it up with me, and uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So what made you fall in love with hip-hop and pick up that composition notebook and say, man, I want to be a cold MC? You know what? That's a good question, actually. I don't know what made me fall. Well, I don't know about the picking up the notebook part, the composition book, but what made me fall in love with hip hop specifically was Boogie Down Productions, my philosophy, the video, the video with uh, with KRS, and he's in the he's in the Jeep Wrangler, and the beat's playing, and then the beat drops out, and he starts going acapella through the first verse, and he gets out the trip out the Jeep and sitting there just that whole thing, my philosophy all the way around. Is why I fell in love with hip hop. As far as writing, uh, I always liked writing, like stories and stuff like that in school. I was in journalism in high school. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a journalist at one time, but I didn't pick up the pen like seriously as far as writing and trying to be an MC seriously until late, late after high school, post college years like post-college year, I should say, um, maybe 21, 22, I really tried to take a chance. All right. Now, are you originally from VA or are you a transplant that relocated to VA? Two up, two down, man, all day, every day, twice on Sunday. <laughs> I've actually lived in Virginia outside of short stint in, in school. I've lived in Virginia my whole life. Okay, what part of VA? Because I got fam in VA. 804, baby, Cap City, Richmond. All right. I was born in Richmond back when it used to be MCV Hospital, now VCU Hospital. Most of my family's in the 434 area, South Hill, Lawrenceville, Emporia, that area. You were born uh, MCV, which is still MCV, really. Uh, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, is in grad school at MCV, uh, VCU. <laughs> yeah, what are what are the what are the odds of that? And where I grew up in North Carolina, we're about maybe 20, 30 minutes from the Virginia line. So to get to Richmond would be like an hour, 30 minutes, Petersburg, Virginia, about 35, 40 minutes, depending on how fast you drive. What what part of Carolina? Um Gaston, North Carolina, Northampton County, Halifax County, uh Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, right around northeastern North Carolina area. Man, I went to school with a guy from Rocky Mountain. I remember going to his house. He, he was coming back to Richmond. He was coming to Richmond to visit his aunt. And we drove to his house in Rocky Mountain because I went to Lewisburg, bro. Wow, that's that's crazy, man. Lewisburg, bun, familiar with that whole area. Not a short drive and it's a small world. So coming from Central VA, and of course, you and I can kind of relate with both of us being from the South, how back before the internet, hip hop and music especially traveled very slow. So what was hot in New York 
was hot here maybe six months later. So what was that like for you digging, going around record stores in Virginia or listening to the radio stations out of Richmond and Petersburg and trying to piece what your idea of hip hop was? I'm going to keep it a buck with you, bro. I was late to hip hop, not, not late to hearing of hip hop or knowing what hip hop is, but late to really getting to hip hop because in my household growing up, it was no secular music, bro. That was like straight gospel. It was gospel or nothing. So I kind of missed the early days of uh, like early Run DMC or before Run DMC. I kind of missed that. You know, you used to hear pieces here and there in school, whatever the case may be. But for the most part, I missed that early part. And it wasn't until probably mid to late 80s, late 80s, really, where I really got all the way into hip hop. Mm -hmm. And the crazy part with uh, Richmond is pretty much a primarily a hot tour stop for any hip hop tour. So let's think about the hip hop tours that came out in the eighties and nineties, like the Raising Hell tour, Fresh Fast, Tougher Than Lover, all of your big name hip hop tours made a stop in Richmond, probably before they hit my neck of the woods in the Carolinas or yep. in the Tidewater area, Norfolk, Hampton, the Hampton Roads, Tidewater Peninsula area. Agreed. I actually, my, my first show, that I ever went to. I don't even know how I got to go to this show because this was still during the no secular music time. Somehow one of my friends talked my mom into letting me go to the Run DMC Beastie Boys joint. That was the first show I went to when they came to Richmond. Was that at the Coliseum? Yeah, absolutely. You know it was. Everything, everything we had was at the Coliseum. There was no Siegel Center. Uh, so if it was in Richmond, it was popping off at the Coliseum at the Coliseum. Now, what was the big radio station at the time for hip hop in central VA area? Because I believe Petersburg had a station at one point, but I'm not sure if they were heavy on hip hop at that time. Oh man, they're going to they gonna kill me. They're going to kill me. 1540, it was AM. Wow. Because they didn't play hip hop. They didn't play hip hop on uh, FM. They didn't play rap music at all, actually, on FM at the beginning. And then eventually they started playing a little bit of rap at night. But the early days, it was like uh, 1540, if I'm not mistaken. And it was on AM. That joint used to play rap like regularly. Well, that's crazy. So they kind of took a page out of what K-Day was doing out West with playing hip hop all day, every day. And then, of course, sprinkling in a little local flavor with a lot of the hip hop that was coming out of Central VA during that time. And this was back, of course, kids during the era when radio used to do what was called day parting, where they would take records that wouldn't affect the ratings, jam it at night or graveyard shift. So that way they could be like, hey, we want to appeal to these advertisers. Let's not play the non-offensive music. And this is back in the days when radio stations used to have liners to say, and no rap. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's when you know you're old too, because I can remember back in the day where they used to play the single, but they had the one with the rap edit where the rap part was completely taken out and it maybe had an extra bridge or two. And yes, the, cra the crazy thing is, think about it back when we were growing up, 
your musical outlets were very slim. You had Yo! MTV Raps, you had Rap City on BT, you had The Box, and then followed by maybe your local rap video show, kind of similar to what Video Music Box and Uncle Ralph was doing up in New York. Every part of the country right. had something similar to that, depending on your locale. So can yep. you just talk about some of the early hip-hop artists that came out of Central VA during that period? Yeah, and actually you mentioned uh, the radio part, there was Caramel, Caramel Video Jams was the local joint uh, around here. And I actually didn't hear about Video Music Box, the real deal, Ralph McDaniels joint, until recently. Like, I always had this idea that the box was what they were talking about. Because we didn't even have the box. We had MTV and eventually BET, but that was just like sporadically, it would be at night couple times a week, then it'd be a little more, and then it finally came to all day. But um, video music, well, the box was not existent here until for a short time in the late 90s. And video music box was, I, I had no idea it even existed. And I'm mad that I missed that. But yeah. uh, you mentioned artists, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying just the power and wonder of the internet, how this regional tri-state area institution is now open for the whole world to see. And I know Uncle Ralph, he's doing a collection where he's trying to get all of those VHS tapes of Video Music Box digitally archived. Yeah, and he's, man, have you seen, have you seen his, uh, his room? That joint yeah, is crazy. Yeah, yeah, when I saw the Wu-Tang doc of Mikes and Men, to see all of that footage, I'm like, you better get it digitized because you know VHS tapes don't last. Yeah, exactly. I'm surprised they lasted this long. I'm surprised they're still holding on, for real. Yeah, but it just goes to show that he has a treasure trove of hip-hop history artists who were unsigned, undiscovered before they blew, pretty much the same way Stretch and Bobito was on the college yep. radio side for hip-hop in New York at Columbia University. Pretty much anybody that ended up becoming somebody in hip-hop pretty much got their start, early beginnings, cut their teeth, either on Stretch and Bobito's show or shouting out with Uncle Ralph on Video Music Box and also shout out to Lionel the Big Kid Martin. And you mentioned Stretch and Bobito. The artist or one of the artists that I was going to mention from the 804 is Mad Skills, who was, I guess he was walked into the studio by Q-Tip. So Q-Tip took him up and uh, Skills shined on, on Stretch and Bobito. So that was kind of his introduction to New York. But before that, he was already, you know, bubbling in Richmond. And he had to kind of get out of Richmond in order to blow. Because at that time, it was tough to be from somewhere not named New York or L.A. Uh, and, and get that shine. Well, you know, Philly, Jersey, but the, the Northeast or the West Coast. Of course, that's, that's before all of the, the South rose again. <laughs> And you mentioned, you said earlier artists. Uh, I think of, I, I'm, I'm sure you've never heard of Mr. Melody or uh, was it Sam the Beast? Uh, and it's somebody I'm forgetting. Oh, MC Ruff, MC Ruff and Obsession. So that was our early, early rap artist. Actually, I mentioned Mad Skills. 
I don't know if you know Down South, which was a, a group from Richmond. They all moved up to New York when they signed their deal, but they were actually from the 804 as well. They had a song called Southern Comfort. Okay, cool deal. Now with Richmond, and then of course, two to three hours east, you got the 757 area. Was there always kind of like a little friendly competition between everything that was coming out of those two areas? And then later on with Missy, Timberland, Neptune's clips, and pretty much when that whole scene blew up and Teddy Riley brought Future Studios down to Virginia Beach. I wish it could have been a competition. There was no competition because we didn't we didn't have much of anything as far as hip hop, especially that was getting national attention. Like it was it was skills. Big Style eventually uh, came through with the uh, it's a problem here. It's a problem where he dissed all the rappers kind of in a in a fifty cent fashion but that was later on um yeah but everything as far as the 804 and 757 it's always rivalry high school football high school basketball women you know anything anything that could be uh battled and we we have better than you then then that's the thing it's still to this day especially in, in the sports it's still to this day right exactly but i know the 757 got the two big jokers where we got bubba chuck and we got Michael Vick, two root revolutionary athletes that changed the game in their respective sports. Yeah, you can't knock Mr. Russell Wilson, though. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Russell right, he's Wilson. from Richmond. Like, we we have a lot of, like, especially now, it's a lot of kids from the 804 that, you know, big-time college athletes and then end up going to the league, including, like, oh, shoot. Off the top of my head, the first person I think of, is Jalen Elliott, safety for, for the Detroit Lions. Uh, Anthony Harris, who's in Philly. Um, Michael Robinson, who played for the Seattle, and uh, he's retired now. But, yeah, it's, it's lots of names, and some of them you probably don't even realize. I don't even think people that are from here realize that these kids are from this area. Right. And you mentioned you caught on to hip-hop late because it was pretty much all gospel all the time. So you know about growing up with that AM gospel station playing Monday through Sunday. Now, who are some <laughs> of the gospel artists that you were listening to through that time period where you listened to Canton Spirituals, Williams Brothers, Jackson Souvenirs, Winans, Commission? Of course, you, you can't get away from the Winans. Actually, my mom used to, my mom, well, you know, you'll know about this. My mom was a, uh, PTL junkie. Mm-hmm. Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker, PTL junkie. And of course, that's where BB and CC first were shown or first, first were seen, pretty much discovered on PTL. Uh, so it was a lot of that, a lot of 700 Club as far as TV, Pat Robinson, which I look back and I'm like, dog, did we really have to watch Pat Robinson? Like that. Anyway, that's a whole nother topic. Um, so it was the Winans Commission, like Andre Crouch, Tremaine Hawkins, Shirley Caesar, of course. Um, yeah, that, that was the vibe. Yeah, and the crazy thing, you mentioned PTL and the 700 Club. PTL was based out of Charlotte, then 700 Club, where it's still to this day, based out of Virginia Beach, because originally it was a CBN Network, which later changed its name to the Family Channel. Then Pat Robinson sold the Family Channel to Fox when it was Fox Family and the stipulation of the sale was you still got to air the 700 Club. Mm. 
hey, ownership is a is a beautiful thing, and so is uh manipulation, I guess, if you know who has the who has the control. <laughs> yeah, if you know, you know. And I spent plenty of time in the seven five seven. My dad was stationed in Fort Eustis in uh, Newport News, so I grew up kind of bit in the Tidewater area, listening to one hundred three jams. So was there a difference in radio during that time between um? What was coming out of Central VA and then what was coming out of the Tidewater area, or was it pretty much all one and the same? Oh, uh, what you said 103 Jams, that's Buddha fam, right? Yeah, 103 Jams, um, Wowie, W-O-W-I, Hampton, North yeah. Newport News. That's the Buddha fam. Yeah, so shout out to the Buddha fam. Um, I think that they had more of a, a grasp on, on hip hop or more of a something dedicated to hip hop as far as a show or um, a direct connection to hip hop, in my opinion. We eventually had that, but we did have, even though it wasn't on, it wasn't like a major station, shout out to DJ Mike Street, who was, DJ Mike Street, who is a, a radio personality. He's like one of the biggest radio personalities in the country at this time right now. And he started out on University of Richmond radio and that's actually where the Super Friends, Mad Skills, Lonnie B, Danger Mouth, and the rest of the crew actually would come and freestyle. So that's where that whole uh, vibe started. And they became a clique, became a group. You know, they had the Aaliyah remix uh, to argue that somebody that went crazy. They got gold plaques for that joint. And yeah, Danger Mouth ended up signing with Missy for a short period. Skills, of course, Mad Skills. He's been everywhere. He just wrote the Jay-Z induction uh, pre-speech when Jay-Z got inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Lonnie B is one of the biggest DJs in the country as well. One of the heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about college radio and AM radio and how important those two entities were to hip hop because FM radio was slow to catch on until they saw the numbers like, oh, we can make money and advertisers like, oh, I can sell to this demo. And yep. let's just talk about the importance of AM radio and college radio and how, like you mentioned, a lot of rappers and DJs cut their teeth in that arena before stepping onto the big stage. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, Mike Street is one, probably the best example I can give, really. Mike Street started out on the University of Richmond Radio when he was going to school there. He ends up being a DJ. Well, he was a DJ for the Super Friends, which was the group that I just mentioned. He ends up getting onto Power 92, which was the main station in Richmond, as far as hip hop, R&B. Then he became a radio personality he moved over to 106.5 The Beat, which is Clear Channel. The, uh, the other, which was later on, the other uh, big urban station. And now, like I said, he's, he's one of the biggest, le legit one of the biggest names and faces in radio today. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. and, and I really think about, I really think about Stretch and Bobito when you mentioned the uh, college radio, just thinking about their impact and then University of Richmond's impact as far as this area. And this was probably the movement all around the country. Actually, when we first started doing music, even though that was later, um, that's where we tried to get our music to, try to get it to college radio to catch on there without having a real deal. 
Mm -hmm. And like I said, that's where a lot of artists pretty much got their start and built their buzz before the major labels came knocking. We go down the list of artists who benefited greatly from college radio. And if you go to YouTube, I know you're going to appreciate what I'm about to tell you. You're going to be like, who in the world found this and was able to post it? So there is an air check from WKNC Magic 88, that's North Carolina State's college radio station. This was from back in 85. Uh, the late Waxmaster Tory, uh, who later went on to go on K97.5 and other stations across the country, he had a young DJ do a set on the Music Showcase 1985. He was originally from North Carolina before he ended up moving down to ATL to stake his claim as one of the best DJs in Atlanta and later became DJ for Criss Cross. And I'm talking about DJ Nabs. Wow, I had no idea. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, which is so crazy and so dope how, you know, a lot of those DJs pretty much was throwing caution to the wind and saying, hey, I'm just gonna play this music that's unfamiliar to the masses and just hope that somebody likes it and eventually pretty much took a cue out of what was going on in New York with uh, Mr. Magic on BLS and what Red Alert and Chuck Chill Out was doing on Kiss, Lady B and Street B out in Philly. And it seemed like a lot of those mixed shows during that period had different variations because your sound regionally may not translate in another part of the country because it's uniquely for that area like you wouldn't hear a go-go record outside of let's say North Carolina maybe if you're lucky maybe seep in a little bit of South Carolina but primarily go-go was DMV high energy what was going on out on the west coast with Egyptian Lover LA Dream Team all that was specifically west coast California Uncle Jam's Army and then you had Miami Bass Uncle Luke, everything that was coming out of Miami, and then early Atlanta hip hop with uh, Mojo, uh, Kilo Ali, Raheem the Dream. Yeah. You are on your dog. You got knowledge, bro. <laughs> you, I, I know. You covered it, the gamut. I, I know. I, I was born in 80, 85, so I was like really young, like watching BT at my grandma's house on satellite, only seeing the box when it was free preview weekend and how. I want to get your take on this since you remember it more so than I do. What was that shift like for you, let's say 86, 87, when the music, hip hop and R&B wise started to become a little bit more aggressive? Because if you look at pre Make It Last Forever, although I put full force in this category because full force laid the groundwork for what was to later come with what Teddy was doing and how R&B shifted from being smooth, make you want to get your Billy D. Williams Colt 45 to where it's like, oh, I could easily have a rap record over this R&B record, which manifested itself into New Jack Swing. Hmm. So what was that like? Uh, that's, that's a good question. What was that like? That's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about it, to be honest. I don't know if I've ever thought about how music went from, well, I guess it was a kinder, gentler R&B to a more aggressive R&B. 
That's a great question. I really don't have an answer for you because I've never thought about that before. I've never thought about that before, but that's a good question. Yeah, because if you think about it, most of the radio personalities at Urban back then called Black Stations at that time was pretty much appealing to the buppies, those who are upwardly mobile elite. You can play your Sade, your Luther, your Freddie Jackson, your Lilo Thomas after five and have your nice candlelight dinner. But once Key Sweat, Bobby Brown, Guy, New Edition with the Heartbreak album and Troop, how it, they just punched R&B in the face like they were 1986 prime Mike Tyson. Yeah. You know, that that's a that's a great point, actually, because the sound changed and it kind of it kind of coincided with hip hop becoming more. Now, I don't want to say mainstream because it was nowhere near mainstream at the time, but becoming more visible. So it may have been part of that part of hip hop coming in that the R&B wanted to take a piece of the hip hop, which was the new thing, and then take the old R&B and, and mash it into a more aggressive or, yeah, more aggressive style of R&B. That's, that's a good point. Right, and then also too, Marley Marl also had that foundation too with what was going on with Juice Crew, the stuff he was doing with Big Daddy Kane, Roxanne Shante. Mm -hmm. Master Ace, Craig G, everything that was coming out of cold chilling. And then, you know, I, and I go back to Teddy because I think Teddy was the first producer to seamlessly go back and forth between both the hip hop world and the R&B world and laid the groundwork for what was to later come with the Neptunes who he discovered while the school, Princess Anne High School, right down the road from Future Studios. Yep. And for Pharrell, that's Pharrell. Uh, Pharrell's on what? Rump Shaker. I think Pharrell's voice is on Rump Shaker. Yeah, Pharrell. And I don't think anybody knew that until recently. Yeah, yeah. He was on Rump Shaker. I think he wrote Teddy's part. And then if you go back and listen to the SWV right here, I think one, S I want to say, double, I want to say. I want to say it was the London mix and it's Pharrell rapping. And that's where you get the SSWW to the V vocal from yeah. and how it was at that moment. I want to say 92 rock the bells did an article on this recently. They felt like 92 okay. was the shift where R&B went from new Jack swing and morphed into hip hop soul. And I want to know if you kind of agree with that synopsis or not that 92 was the shift from R&B going to New Jack Swing where it was more dancey, more bright where it was went to hip hop soul around late 92, early 93 with Mary J. Blige intro Prince Marky D in the Soul Convention, rest in peace Prince Marky D free album, underrated, mm -hmm. I'm going to put that out there Yeah, that, that sounds like a legit time frame because you had well the introduction of Mary obviously was was crazy, but she had the backing of Diddy and you know Bad Boy, uh, Andre Harrell obviously, and she had the the song with Biggie, well songs with Biggie, songs with Grand Poobah. So she had the the hip hop vibe, the hip hop flavor mixed in with the R and B vocals. So that was the takeover right there. Like I think Diddy is heavily. I don't want to overcredit Diddy as if he was in the studio doing actual button pushing, 
because nah. But between Diddy and Jermaine Dupree, that is where the game kind of changed from R&B or from New Jack, New Jack Swing, which took over for R&B to that more soulful, like you spoke of. Soulful and, and a hip hop vibe as well. Mm-hmm. Hip hop soul, because if you listen to the Come and Talk to Me remix by Jodeci, samples Your Customer yep. by EPMD, and we mentioned gospel earlier. And Jodeci, mm-hmm. they cut their teeth mm-hmm. in the gospel world. Casey and JoJo, the Haley singles, hence the Haley singers, yeah. excuse me. And then Dalvin Devontae had their own gospel group with, with their dad and their family. And how you could tell the gospel influence meshed with the hip hop and the R&B was a perfect marriage. Because if you go back and look at the 5 MC, Treat Them Like They Want To Be Treated video, Jodeci was dressing like Guy. But it was Diddy at Uptown who's like, nah, we're going to take y'all from country church boys, have y'all in Timberlands, combat boots, and just make y'all the bad boys of R&B. I mean, we got a whole bunch of kids now that was named Devontae because of Devontae Swing. Bruh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's funny. Um, but that's definitely true. And um, yeah, Jodeci came out of, I mean, it felt like Jodeci came out of nowhere. But, well, they kind of did come out of nowhere, to be honest. But you take those those guys from North Carolina and bring them to that that light. They brought them to that light. And that, that being with Diddy, you know, Diddy was already, I, th- I feel like Diddy was Diddy even before he was Diddy. Like he was already that dude in certain circles before he even hit the uh, the big stage. Right. And the crazy part about Jodeci and Devontae, Devontae knows talent because if it wasn't for Devontae, no Missy, no Timberland, no Tweet, no Genuine, no Player, rest in peace, Static Major, and how, who would have thought that this woman from the group sister their album dope album that she would go on to have an illustrious career songwriter hall of fame hollywood walk of fame and it all started in the 757 in uh, portsmouth yeah and i've been waiting i'm a versus junkie i don't know you probably don't know that because i don't think i've talked about that on anything really as far as uh the youtube sourcing company but i'm a versus junkie and I feel like even though Virginia has never had a sound specifically, or Richmond's never had a sound, 757 has, I mean, Timberland sound is a sound, but they've got Timberland, Burrell, Bank, et cetera, uh, Knotts, you know, the list goes on and on as far as producers. But I was like, if Virginia, if only Virginia people end up doing solo verses, that would be kind of crazy. So we had D'Angelo who is from Richmond. I mean, I, we actually went to high school together. Oh, really? um, yeah. He did the solo verses. He's the only person that's done a solo verses. And they've been trying to get Missy on a versus. And she's always like, I don't want to do it. You know, I don't want to go against Mary. I don't want to go against my brother Buster, blah, blah, blah. She deserves a solo joint. She deserves a solo joint. She can get up there and do her thing. And we will all tune in because it's Missy. And she will have guest appearances by everybody you want to see. Right. And you mentioned you went to high school, D'Angelo, and I want to back up real quick on that. So was yeah. there any inklings that he was going to be something special then? Or was it until right when he started making noise and before Brown Sugar that was like, oh, this guy is pretty much, to me, a hip hop version of Prince. 
like if Prince and hip hop had a baby, that, to me, that's D'Angelo. <laughs> Here's the thing. D'Angelo's sung in high school because he sung in the church. And uh, I think he would win some like talent contests. Um, but I had no clue. I had no clue he even sung. I always th thought of him as the dude that wears the Doc Martens and wears the, the overall joints, but with the one strap off. Every time I think about him in high school, that is what I see, him with the overall joints with the Doc Martin boots on. <laughs> That's what I see in my mind. Um, and I didn't know that he, I knew he moved to DC. It was rumored that he had moved to DC at some point after, after school. And I remember being at this park called Rockwell Park where we hoop, you know, it's one of the, one of the most popular places for like real ballers to go in this area. And I remember being on the court and this car pulls up and four dudes jump out. Like they drove in all reckless through the dirt, dirt flying. They come walking up. I'm like, Mike, what's up? Dap him up. <laughs> Then he, he goes and does what he does, whatever he's doing, talking to somebody. Goes out, says goodbye. They get back in the car, drive off with the dust flying. That is the last time I saw him until the uh, Brown Sugar video. And I was like, hold on, bro. Is that who I think it is? I know that's not Michael Archer on the TV right now. And it was. And wait until you saw the Untitled How Does It Feel video. All the ladies like, <laughs> oh, really? Is that you? The same guy I went to school with, you sitting in that hey big head or hey stranger text. If you you know you know that text, uh, those of you who did that back in college, or if you're not in a committed relationship, you know that hey big head and hey stranger stranger text. I ain't gonna say no more about that. <laughs> hey, you know what though? You know what's funny? Because you're a little bit younger. I don't I don't think I don't think there was text at the time. <laughs> I don't think there was text at the time, bro. Uh, I don't even know if we, we, we weren't even heavy on cell phones. We weren't even heavy on cell phones. We was on, on pagers. Yeah, beepers or you would call the house phone and hope that don't nobody pick up like, hey, hey you got to be very quiet. Oh, my mama don't sleep. I ain't supposed <laughs> to have nobody call the house after nine. Get off my phone. Run to my phone bill. <laughs> hey, hey, I got to go talk to you in school tomorrow. Yep. Straight like that. Straight like that. Yeah, yeah. And the crazy thing about that time period was rap was pretty much New York based. And then like around 88, 89, that was when everything out West started breaking outside of the West Coast with NWA and all the all the associated acts. And you just recently did an album review of the DOC's album. And I had DJ Yella on my podcast uh, not too long ago, we were talking about DOC and how his contribution to the West Coast doesn't get enough mention and how I felt had he not gotten into his accident, he would have been one of the best rappers to come out of the West Coast. Yeah, and I've heard that a lot uh, on my, so I'm on, I don't know if you know this, I'm on TikTok, uh, under the name Source of Course. And they pretty much just dragged me into just being the hip hop guy. I'm just the hip hop 90s, 2000s hip hop dude. So, and that's, the, that's actually the reason I started doing the, the reviews because people said, please do some album reviews. 
do some throwback album reviews. So that's why I started doing it. Um, but a lot of people were like, yo, if, if the DLC didn't have his accident, man, he might've been, he might've been Snoop. He was Snoop before Snoop. And I don't know if personality wise that would have worked out. I have no idea, but I definitely appreciate DLC's uh, contribution from the album to writing uh, on multiple projects, Easy Does It and um, The Chronic, et cetera, to just being a part of that whole movement with NWA. Right, and I think Dre did some, some production on the DLC's album, right? Yeah, he did He did everything. I don't know if he did every single song, but he was the uh, executive producer of the project, though. Right, and it all came to culmination in this past year's Super Bowl, the L.A. Super Bowl with Dre, Snoop, Kendrick, Mary, Eminem, guest cameo by 50 Cent. And to think yeah. that you pulled Dr. Dre to do Super Bowl halftime, where it's pretty much the hip-hop prince, where you may hear from once every 50 years. And to think how when The Chronic came out, hard to believe it's been 30 years since the chronic yes we're old and how that album changed the landscape of not only rap music but pop music and i felt like that was the album that really kicked the door down for rap and say we're here we accept it as a mainstream viable art form i mean beastie boys and run dmc they laid the groundwork but the chronic album and then the following year next year this album will turn 30 snoop dogg's doggy style album really ushered in hip-hop's mainstream acceptance yeah i think i think part of it part of it was that you know hip-hop was new york new york was hip-hop and there were albums that popped in the west before the chronic but as far as radio mtv play uh and being accepted by the whole country the Chronic was it. The Chronic is top. It's my third favorite album. If I had to, you know, if I went top five, I'd probably say it's my third favorite album of all time. And it was just so crazy because we'd be on the East Coast or in Virginia riding around to some music 3,000 miles away. And we never had to really do that. Um, but so much because everything came from New York. So a couple states away as opposed to across the country. Right, and for me, being seven, eight years old, watching MTV, BET, seeing the G-Thing video, Jenny Juice video, I told DJ Yellow this, that you guys were my first intro to what life in California was, because, you know, with dad, boys in the hood, minister society, it was where everybody outside of the West Coast got to kind of sort of see a portrayal of what they thought life out West, especially South Central LA was like. Yeah, it's funny you say that because uh, I don't know if you pay attention to Drink Champs, but Nori, when Snoop was on, and I think Nori's done this multiple times, um, when he has somebody from the West Coast on, he's always talking about, I was afraid of Compton, because I thought Compton was a jail. Like, we had like, uh, you know, uh, what was it, Rikers Island, whatever island they had a song about in New York. He, he was thinking that Compton was a jail. He was like, I don't want to go to that jail. So that, that's because that's what other what other knowledge of California or L.A. lifestyle do you have other than through the music or TV? 
And it's not like you saw a lot of people in the hood on TV right. at that time. Right. And then before we transition out of the West Coast and go into the rise of the South with what was coming out of Memphis with DJ Spanish Fly, 3-6 Mafia, Houston with everything that was coming out of Rap-A-Lot, UGK out of Port of Texas, rest in peace, Pimp C, and then everything with yeah. Atlanta with the face and so-so death. I want to talk about this one West Coast producer, rapper who I feel does not get enough love, enough shine, but real ones know his impact and his contributions. DJ Quick. DJ Quick. <laughs> I knew who you were saying before you said it, because uh, a lot of people say that DJ Quick doesn't get his just due. And that's true. But I don't know that everybody really knows Quick like, like that. I think people have heard his name and just gotten used to hearing his name and feeling like he got the short end. When really... I mean, I, I don't think Quick, I, he might, I don't know. I was about to say, I don't think Quick would say that he doesn't get his uh, respect, but maybe not to the level that he actually deserves. Maybe not to the level that he actually deserves. Mm -hmm. And now we're going into the South and how, you know, you have Rapalot out of Houston, you had 3-6 Spanish Fly out of Memphis, and then in Atlanta before the face, you had Cameo, you had Brick, um, Sleepy Brown's dad was in Brick, and then you also had mm -hmm. SOS Band out of Atlanta. But it wasn't until L.A. Reid, Babyface, and Pebbles decided, hey, let's set up shop in Atlanta. We're going to create this label. And that started the trickle-down effect with everybody to come out of Atlanta. And then, of course, Bobby Brown, Later, groundwork with that too, setting up Boss Town Studios in Atlanta, which later became, I believe, Stank Onia Stank Studios with Outcast. And let's mm. just talk about the impact of LaFace and later Jermaine Dupree and So So Death and how those two labels pretty much gave a whole region and a whole state and a whole city a sound and identity that's still being felt two plus decades later. Uh, and I want to just mention uh, also, because he gets overlooked sometimes, um, Dallas Austin also oh, yeah. had a hand in, in that as well. Oh, yeah. He gets overlooked, which is, I mean, you know, I get it. He gets overlooked. But Babyface, Babyface is, is, I don't even know what to say about Babyface. That man is, what, 62, 61, 62 years old. And to this day, he is still one of the smoothest operators uh, in the music game. And we saw that back to Versus. We saw that when he and Teddy Riley were going back and forth on Versus. And I, I never knew Babyface had, had jokes like that. Babyface got jokes, you know. <laughs> he was clowning Teddy, Teddy Riley. That was yeah. funny. But shout out to, to them. I love the deal. First, got to say that the deal, two occasions, was mine. Like, that was... That was one of those joints that every time the video came on, I was like, let me rewind this joint. Let me rewind. Because that was my joint. I don't know what it was about R&B before I got into hip hop for real. Uh, R&B was my, my favorite. LaFace is still a big deal. It's still the reason um, between Jermaine Dupri and Babyface, I think, are the main reasons that Atlanta became the mecca that it is for music. And it's not even just hip hop. You started with the R&B, like you mentioned, 
of course, Jermaine had a lot of hip hop as far as uh, finessing sequests and just doing different acts, then finding Bow Wow, you know, uh, the Brad, et cetera, et cetera, crisscross. He had a lot going on as far as hip hop as well. But I think it was those three. Babyface, Jermaine Dupree, and then shout out to Dallas Austin. And I got to mention Usher, Usher. Those three uh, were the reason that Atlanta started to rise. And then it's been the big takeover since then. So now Atlanta is the mecca of hip hop as well. Yeah, because when Andre 3000 got up on stage at the Source Awards and said the South got something to say, he meant that and the South is still saying it. But we can't forget the silent partner of LaFace alongside LA and Babyface for all their hits, Mr. Daryl Simmons. Yeah. I see that that's funny that you said Daryl Simmons, because I surely thought you were gonna uh mention <laughs> I thought you were gonna say LA Reed. That's what I thought you were gonna mention. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned Dallas Austin at the top and how if it wasn't for George Finderella Irby from Climax, we wouldn't have Dallas Austin because Dallas Austin cut his teeth doing early production work on Troop's Attitude album. Go look at the album credits for My Music and I Will Always Love You, which Fat Joe sampled for Another Round. Those were early Dallas Austin production credits before he did ABC and then later Boyz Men on the Cooley Eye Harmony album, which to me was Boyz Men's best album. What year was that with the um, Dallas Austin first? Um, Troop's Attitude album came out in 89 because he did Hey Mr. 89. DJ for Fenderella, um, the joint she did with Dougie Fresh. He produced that. Yo, that is crazy. That is crazy to think because let me let me Google. I got to see how old. Like we know that Jermaine, Jermaine was what, 14 when he started producing. I need to look at Dallas Austin because I'm not sure how old Dallas Austin is. Yeah, but he don't he don't look look his age though. Dallas has been in the game in a minute, and now six, seven year old me, Jermaine Dupree, and um Kevin Wells and Michael Bivens, mm-hmm. they missed out on a golden opportunity to have ABC and Crisscross go on tour. Because I always told yeah. people this, and I interviewed the late Chris Kelly or Chris Cross, and I asked him this when I interviewed him. I always felt the I like you know and don't be claiming that his mental line was a diss to ABC. Absolutely. 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 It had to be. There's, there's nothing else it could have been. Definitely a straight shot at, at ABC. To me as well. Yeah, which is crazy because both groups came out of Atlanta and then the outlier out of all that in Atlanta that really exploded big was Arrested Development because it mm-hmm. took me years to find out that Tennessee sampled Alphabet Street from Prince off the Love Sexy album. And then I believe there was an interview that Speech did with uh, DJ Vlad. And he was talking about um, how it finally got out to Prince that they had uh, authorized the sample of Alphabet Street. And this was back when record companies weren't paying for the clearance. And it was like, use it and hope that nobody catches it. That Prince (laughs) found out and then I believe Prince heard the song and the meaning about it and was like, I cut you guys a break. I give you a flat rate for the clearance of the sample and we won't make an issue of it. But, you know, Arrested Development, they were huge. People forget how yeah. huge Arrested Development was. Tennessee, listen, Tennessee was played every morning. I remember, I don't feel like I was in college. I feel like I was at Lewisburg. And every morning at seven o'clock, 
Tennessee would come on the radio. Like, I don't know how long this was for, but maybe a whole semester. It was every morning. It would just be on and, and yeah, shout out to, to speech and, and family, for real. Mm. Now you mentioned Lewisburg College. Um, what years did you attend Lewisburg? I was actually at Lewisburg for one year. It was 1992, 1992. Okay. Um, I thought, I, go ahead. Okay. The reason why I asked was I was curious if you ever listened to K97 or Foxy 107. This was before they picked up the 104 signal out in Rocky Mount and simulcast 107 on 104 because Foxy 107 was competing with K97 with hip hop and R&B and then later K97 overtook Foxy and then that's when they switched to urban adult contemporary. So did you remember listening to K97 or Foxy 107 for that year you were at Lewisburg College? It had to be 97 because I don't remember a 107. Um, but I wouldn't say I listened to it during the day, but I definitely listened to the quiet storm every night. That was, you know, that was the fall asleep music uh, mm-hmm. on a nightly basis. Yeah, and speaking of the quiet storm, you can catch the interview that I did with Thomas the Thrill Hill, who did the quiet storm on K97 on Beyond the Album Cover. I mean, him, Cy Young, I mentioned the late Wax Master Toy earlier, Wink Moody on Duty, Chris Connors, and how it was because of K97. I know Grace Jones pulled up to my bumper because he used to use that as their top bed for traffic breaks and for intros. <laughs> Road hog. I mean, every time I hear pull up to my bunker bumper, I just want to do a K97.5 air break because that station and that song was just ingrained in me. And everybody kind of has that with a certain radio station, certain radio personalities and how it seems like with the changes in the industry with first CD burning with Napster and podcasting, how radio Mm -hmm. doesn't really have that same stranglehold on people like that anymore. So what's your thoughts on the changes in not only the music, but in the technology, how people access it, where you would used to pass around mixtapes like they were, uh, I'm not going to say what I was going to say because it ain't not safe for work. But let's just say it was passed around like uh, a certain um, herbal essence, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, mixtapes was our only our only conduit to the New York sound. Because somebody would, ha- well, especially back in the day, somebody would have to have gone to New York and brought a tape home. They would have had to bring home the music um, to get it to other places. So, but that was before radio really got got popping as far as uh, playing hip hop. But yeah, it was definitely mixtape heavy. And I'm sorry, I forgot the, the first question that you asked. Yeah, so what was, what's your opinion on like the changes and how people access music, how we used to sit by the radio with our tape decks on the ready, ready to record where now you can just go on to whatever streaming service you use in this instant. Right. In the same vein, I actually was talking about, uh, I had taken a trip to California at some point in time in the eighties, rode a bus to California with my dad. And I remember calling my mom and it was five Oh five Pacific time. It was eight Oh five, you know, local or for East coast. And it was a Thursday. 
do you know what my mom was doing? Because our conversation was real short because she had to get back to what she was doing. Do you know what she was doing? Uh, let me guess, watching Cosby Show? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, you had to watch it. If you don't watch it, then you just miss it. You was just out of luck, right? Mm-hmm. For the most part, you was just out of luck. So um, I kind of relate that that listening to the radio or sitting by the radio waiting for a song to come on and then hitting record to to that moment in time for me. But I'm thankful for the ability. Well, it has its its positives and its negatives. The positives of the music being one more accessible and two easier to easier to get into the game is that everybody has a fighting chance. So you don't have to be from New York. You don't have to know certain people in order to get your music to the masses. And the same way we can receive music without having to wait for somebody to come from New York or wait for a mixtape or wait for, we don't have to wait for anything. We can just Google a name, pull up a name and play the song. But with that great power comes great responsibility and not everybody is responsible with the music that's why a lot of times you get what I would think is subpar, what I would call subpar music, because it's accessible to everybody. And it's not necessarily that you have to be good with the music. You don't have to be a good artist. You don't have to be a good rapper. You don't have to be a lyricist. You don't have to be any of that. If you have a fan base based on your personality slash brand and your ability to get people to pay attention to you. So that's, to me, that's why you get subpar music sometimes. So there's the positive of the technology and there's the negative because there's no, the positive again, positive, no gatekeepers, negative, no gatekeepers. Right, because pretty much the internet technology cut the middleman out. You could just do it yourself. It's kind of like back to the days when producers used to do everything in their bedrooms before they would go to the studio to master their record and really give mm-hmm. that professional quality sound. Cause I remember hearing the interviews, how Teddy Riley did a good chunk of those classic albums where he lived in the St. Nicholas projects and the Word. vocal booth was in the shower and he used the, the paper towel dispenser holder for echo and just how you had to be inventive with what you had because of either the technological limitations of the day, or you just didn't have the bread to go into the studio because back then studio time costs money. Exactly. You know, I um I mentioned TikTok earlier. There was there was a guy on TikTok, a young guy, 20 years old, talking about, yeah. So he, he was doing a whole video talking about Will Smith. He's like, yeah, so the Fresh Prince, Will Smith. He was not a good rapper. He wasn't uh, this or that. And I had to just make a response to his video like, sir, like, what are are you talking about? Will Smith wasn't a good rapper. It's like, at this point, people rewrite the history because they don't know. And if they don't know, and here's the problem. People have access to, to whatever. And if you're popular, and you spew nonsense, people are accepting your word because they trust you. So Mm -hmm. you're spewing nonsense. They're believing nonsense, which kind of goes to a political realm, but we won't get into all that. But you're spewing nonsense. They're accepting the nonsense, and they're taking that nonsense as fact, when in fact, it's not remotely close to being true. 
Right. I agree. And that's the crazy thing. Like you mentioned, Will Smith and how minus what happened at the Oscars. We're not going to go there. A lot of young people have their frame of reference of Will Smith from his movies and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, how when we grew up, we knew him as the Fresh Prince. Parents just don't understand. Girls ain't nothing but trouble. Summertime. You know, and Jazzy Jeff, one of the coldest DJs. Coldest DJs. Still, still, still cold. Still cold. I only listen to I Want to Rock just to hear his cuts and to hear his scratches. And then, yeah. you know, and also we could put Queen Latifah and LL Cool J mm -hmm. in this category as well. How they surpassed their previous careers as rappers. Sometimes you just maybe got to get on the mic for a minute and say, don't let this Hollywood money fool you. I can still rip a hot 16. Absolutely. And shout out to Queen Latifah. She was actually, what was it, just two, three, was it two years ago? Two, three years ago, she was just, just on, uh, on Rhapsody's album. So she's still, she's still in the mix and she's Queen Latifah. But right. I see her, I, I've, I've said that Queen Latifah is the female version of Will Smith. Maybe Will Smith is the male version of Queen Latifah. Latifah is real though. Like mm. she's an actress. She was on uh, Broadway in a musical. She's led TV shows. She's led movies. She, did I say talk show? Talk show. Yeah, she had a talk show. She's been an executive producer. Uh, and that's just outside of her rap career. Like she is ridiculous. Uh, in the grand scheme, but she is always hip hop. She is always hip hop, and I don't think anybody can ever forget that. Right, and then with LL, of course, all his accolades. But you know, when I see Damon John on Shark Tank, how if it wasn't for LL in the Gap commercial sneaking in yeah. Fubu in the commercial for us by us on the low, yep. that we wouldn't have Fubu and we wouldn't have Damon John on Shark Tank. <laughs> No, and that, that's a great point. It, I kind of, uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll point out to people, like, obviously, you shouldn't do bad stuff. Like, you shouldn't do illegal things, blah, blah, blah. But imagine if the people who did, have done illegal things and made money and turned that into music Imagine if they didn't do that. If they didn't do that, like we think, we think it's bad now as far as poverty and, and families that can't afford this and that. Imagine no hip hop. Imagine no hip hop. So all the people that did things that you would, you would view as negative, if they didn't push that envelope, man, it's crazy. I don't, I don't even, I don't, you know. Yeah. That's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, the world would be a totally different place. Now, I want to get your thoughts on the impact and legacy of these hip-hop groups, these three groups. Okay. Um, first group, Wu-Tang Clan. Second group, De La Soul. And the third group, um, they're, they're nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, RIP Fife, A Tribe Called Quest. Don't you dare talk about a fight. Don't you you gonna ask me to talk about Tribe Called Quest, bro? You know I could be here for the rest of the night. Like you got somewhere to be, because Tribe is my group. Tribe is my favorite group of all time. I don't know if you know that or not, but that is a fact. Uh Wu Tang. So the impact of Wu Tang, 
I mean, we all know the impact of rule change, but the start of it for a lot of us was knowing Rizzo had a deal, just had a deal. They both had their projects come out and flop for lack of a better term, but at least they had some industry experience, came back, got the, got the gang together and ended up coming out and changing music, especially the fact that they all signed solo deals outside of their uh, group's company. So the fact that, who was it, Steve Rifkin? Yeah, Steve Rifkin, Steve Rifkin allowed. allowed. Allowed that because he wanted them so bad, he allowed that to be part of their, uh, their negotiation that they could spread, spread the wealth and basically not have to worry about fighting and fighting and trying to get all of those acts out on one, out, one uh, label. And they were able to flood the market. I mean, it changed, it changed the game. Not that everybody's been able to do that because you can't have a nine-man group with a 10-man group. Uh, if you count Cap Capadonna, you can't really have that. And then that, like, that's not a thing. It's not like, like what other nine-man rap group, 10-man rap group is there? There aren't any. Collectives maybe, but not groups. And Wu-Tang, even though I think that Enter um, the Wu-Tang Classic and um, the W, it can be argued as a classic. I'd say it's a very good album. Even though those two albums are the best group projects, the impact of the solo projects that are still under the Wu umbrella changed music. Like They actually took over the game Matter of fact, the other day I asked the question, who is the greatest hip hop group of all time? And by and large, Wu-Tang was the number one answer. Now, I did get one or two people to say De La Soul. And we were just talking about De La Soul today, actually, because De La has been around since what, 89? How many groups are still around intact from 89? I don't know. I don't know if I can think of another one that never had a breakup, a visible breakup. Mm -mm. Even two man groups, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, uh, EPMD, everybody had breakups as far as people that, that still do music consistently. De La is underappreciated. Um, but the, the best part about De La to me, outside of not breaking up and staying together and all this time, is that they never missed. They never flopped. They always had dope product. Whether everybody liked it or not is one thing, but they always put out dope product, even to this, to this day, to this day. Tribe, like I said, I, I told you that, that uh, The Chronic is my third favorite album of all time. I failed to mention that number one and two are Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders. <laughs> yeah, you can't go wrong, you can't go wrong with that. You can't go wrong with that. And like absolutely, me, tribe change again. Yeah, like me, I came on the tribe on Low End Theory because I believe that came out in what ninety one. Yep, ninety ninety one. Yeah, ninety one, and then ninety two. Ninety remix came out of uh, scenario. Oh. Okay, yeah, because I was about like six when that came out, but it wasn't until I saw the Beats, Rhymes, and Life doc that I found out that about the fourth member, Jerobi. Okay, 
So you didn't even know about Jerobi, yeah. Yeah, not until Jirobi Big Rhymes and Life was directed by Michael Rappaport, because I believe they said in that dot that Jerobi had verses and everything for low end, but he wanted to go into a different direction and explore his culinary arts passion. And then that was later we became to know as the trifecta with Q-Tip, Fife, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Yeah, man. And respect it to respect to Fife and rest in peace, Fife. It started out as a four-man group. And on the first album, actually, you, you hear a lot of Jerobi because there's a, a skit, not a skit, kind of like an intro that plays over and over. And um, it's Jerobi talking on, on all of them. So you hear his voice a lot, whether it's in rhyme form, which you hear a little bit, but mostly as just being part of the collective. But it made more sense for the group to be a three-man group. Um, you know, you got Q-Tip, who is the everything of the group. Fife, who is the the one, like, when I think of Outkast, I think of Andre being able to fly around and be all over the place because Big Boy was there to keep the group grounded. So close mm-hmm. to the street, close to um, normal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, societal norm, norm, norms. Mm. That's, that was Fife. Fife was keeping the group here, societal norms, straight bars, while you got Q-Tip, who is all over the place, and of course, Ali Shaheed Muhammad behind the boards. Tribe is my favorite group of all time, bar none. Any music doesn't matter. It's Tribe over everything. Tribe over everything. Now, I want to know if you agree with this or not. I was, it was a podcast I was listening to. I believe it was Quest Love Supreme, and they, they, were in, yeah, they were interviewing uh, Tedra Moses and, they, and, and uh, she was, they were talking about uh, the far side. And I believe they were saying they felt like the far side was like the West Coast version of Tribe. Do you agree with that or not? Whether the far side was the West Coast version of Tribe? It, it, you know, far side was, to me, far side was more closer to silly and certain like not to be disrespectful but closer to jokey kind of silliness way more than tribe like tribe was never really like jokey like that mm. and actually less than probably three weeks ago i i listened to uh the far side's debut again a bizarre ride to the far side mm. And not to be negative, but I, and of course, it's, it's, you know, close to 30 years later, not everything, like some albums still translate, still resonate to this day as if they're more current. And I was listening to uh, Bizarre Ride and I was like, man, I, I get why we liked it and I get why they're dope, but it just doesn't, it doesn't have the same doesn't have the same oomph as it did at the time to me personally yeah. yeah some albums just don't age well but now this one artist producer who has since passed but dan charnish just released a brilliant book about this man from the 313 and how he's impacted artists and producers so can we just talk about the legacy and influence of jay dilla you want to hear something wild that you have, there's no way that you know this. <laughs> I was on this record um, by this label called Mad Game. 
older, even at the time, he was an older white guy who loved making hip hop. His name was Tracula at the time. His name is JP. He put out a record and it was under the name Mad Game, madgame.com. Dilla sampled that record like five times for Donuts, yo. Crazy. I was like, what? I just found this out like a year ago. Dilla used Mad Game's record like five times on Donuts. I was like, man, that is that is historic. That would have been great, a great thing to know back in the day at the time when Dilla was still alive. Rest in peace, Dilla, of course. Uh, Jay Dilla is your favorite producer's favorite producer. Um, he was doing things that people didn't know how to do, or maybe he was doing things that he didn't even know how to do, but he found a way to do them before anybody else could. I don't know if that makes perfect sense, but Dilla was ahead of his time so much that he changed the game. Even after his death, he's still changing the game. People are still uh, holding on to him. I don't know if you saw, um, I don't know when this interview was done with Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers talking mm-hmm. about Dilla and his, his love of Dilla, even though he didn't know who Dilla was when he was alive. And this man, Flea, is like, he felt the music that JD put out there so much that like he's crying in an interview about somebody in the music game that he didn't even know existed when they were alive. And their music is still hitting them like that today. But that's how Jay Dilla's beast was. Another thing, I'll throw it out there before you, if, um, before you jump in. Mad Skills, I'll bring them up again. Mad Skills, my homie Frizzell. Rest in peace, Frizzell. Uh, friends with, with Skills. He had a beat tape uh, that, that Skills had. And he invited me over one day. We're kicking it. On one side of the tape is Beats from Rockwilder. On the other side is Beats from Dilla. On this beat tape, there was Running. And there was uh, Stakes is High as well. And it was a couple more joints that you know came out later that were joints uh, in the world. But just to think about the talent that is Jay Dilla and all that he did, Frank and Dank, Slum Village, you know, working with so many people, the Soul Quarians, Tribe, like, it's amazing. So, Lab Cabin, California, it, it's, it's amazing. And he's still missed to this day, musically. Yeah. yeah, he is. And I think two of the biggest crimes in hip hop for me, we never got a Native Tongues compilation album with De La, Black Sheep, Jungle Brothers, everybody that was associated with Native Tongues. And number two, Little Brother should have been bigger. I'm going to say it again. Mm. Little Brother should have been bigger. They followed the blueprint that Dayline Tribe laid down. They were right in that middle of, you know, when everything started transitioning. And, you know, and me being from North Carolina, you know, I was rooting heavy for Little Brother. The listening, one of my top five rap albums of all time, Minstrel Show, top 10. And of course, Fonte doing his thing with Foreign Exchange. He's on Quest Love Supreme. And I just felt Little Brother should have gotten more commercial success. I can agree with that. And you would have thought that they, I mean, they were right behind. They actually were right there in Kanye, with Kanye. Them, Kanye, uh, Kuali, 
kind of in the same same vein. Of course, Kanye went to the moon with his, but you got Ninth Wonder, you know, with the production with, with Hove, and that kind of helped elevate them some. But for whatever reason, I guess maybe they just weren't flashy enough for the time, for the time frame to grasp the eyes and ears of everybody. Although it's a lot of us hip hop heads that love Lil Brother, love Fonse, Big Pooh. I actually, I won't get into my Fonte story. I have a Fonte story, uh, a Ninth Wonder story, and uh, them to all together story as well. But that, that's neither here nor there. I did have Daniel Brockington though on, on my album back in uh, like 2006. Mm, yeah and i want to talk about real quickly these two things before we wrap shout outs and everything uh the impact and legacy of new edition and then also the impact of gogo now what i'm about to tell you about gogo is gonna bug you out so chuck brown he was born in my hometown in north carolina lived there for years before moving to dc because i tell people this all the time outside of Herbie Lovebug Azar, who used a lot of go-go sounds for Salt and Pepper, Early Kid and Play, that go-go was pretty much DMV, North Carolina, maybe a little bit of South Carolina, depending on if you're from the DMV area and you go to school down there. So first right. up, Legacy of New Edition and how they're still kicking butt, taking names to this day, just recently wrapped the culture tour. And Michael Bivens was just named the cultural director of the New Harlem Cultural Festival. And of course the new edition story did numbers. And how, if you go back and listen to Candy Girl, they were the first group singing to incorporate rap. Think about it, 1983, hearing a rap in the middle of an R&B record, that was unheard of. And also, we got to give props to Force and D's as well because they they did that as well. Bro, you said about seven different things that I would like to talk about, but I won't go into all of them. I will say this: and you said the tour is over. Yeah, they just recently wrapped the culture tour. I asked because, so I've had three interviews get canceled in the last like month or so, including two days ago. <laughs> so my last three interviews got canceled. One of them was with, you talking about Gogo, DJ Cool. Why did it get canceled? Because on Tuesday, the interview was supposed to be on Wednesday evening. On Tuesday evening, DJ Cool got a call from New Edition, their uh, road manager or whomever was in, ch in charge of the tour to jump on their tour. When did the tour start? The next night, which was that Wednesday that I was supposed to interview him. So <laughs> I haven't gotten back with DJ Cool since then. I really need to get to DJ Cool because that would be a dope interview. Anyway, um, new addition. Man, just think about 40 years, bro. 40 years of new addition. That is nuts. I, I don't think I've actually stopped and thought about 40 years of new addition being a thing from child stars to teen and, and young adults to solo careers to coming back. And this, all oh, this was before 2000. This was all before 2000. And still being able to come back at this point in 2022 and tour 
with ease outside of Bobby. Bobby looked like he might have been struggling a little bit, but I love Bobby and Bobby is underappreciated. He said king of R&B. I'm not even mad at him for saying king of R&B. Not that he necessarily is, but I'm not mad at him for saying it because Bobby had joints as a solo artist. Bobby had crazy joints yep. as a solo artist. Yeah, Bobby Milk don't be cool for four years. Bruh. Until Bobby came out his, in 92. Whole, 88 yeah, to 92, whole, Bobby Brown? I'm going to say it again. Brown's 88 man. to 92, Bobby Brown? Go look at some old Bobby Brown concert footage from 89, 90, 91, 92. That's all I'm going to say. Problem. Problem. But yeah, shout out to the whole, all six, all six of them um, for creating this legacy that still resonates with people today. Mm, definitely that. And I'm sure Coogee Rap is still eating good off of BBD sampling him for poison. <laughs> and that's it's another underrated poison. rapper poison. who I feel poison. don't give enough credit, enough shine, enough love, Coogee Rap. And that, while you mentioned that, I'll say Back in the day, there were four MCs that we used to mention. Like, if you had a conversation about who's your favorite rapper, blah, 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 it was you had to say Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, KRS One, and Koji Rap. Those were the four. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about Go Go and its impact and its influence. I got to be honest, dog. I personally, I, I say that I'm not a big Go Go head, or I've never been a big Go Go head. And it may be true as far as like buying music, but in the club, at the party, Go-Go is crazy. Like they just, there's nothing like Go-Go. And the fact that Go-Go is not necessarily a national treasure, like it's, it's ours. It's really DC's for real. Like it's DC's baby, but we can say that it's ours, even down to North Carolina, like you said, especially you said that, um, Chuck, Chuck was born in your hometown, so you definitely have mm-hmm. a direct stake into, into Go-Go. So this whole area from North Carolina to D.C., Go-Go, if there was ever a sound, like I was talking about a sound for hip-hop in Virginia, mm. we might not have had a sound for hip-hop, but there was Go-Go that had its own sound and its own vibe and its own culture. And thankful, thankfully, uh, Spike Lee gave us some light in school days back in the day with EU doing the butt during that movie. And that kind of brought Go-Go more into the forefront for a lot of people. Right. And then prior to that, I believe they were signed to Def Jam. It was um, Trouble Funk, I want to say. Trouble Funk. Sardines. And then, of course, um, Pump Me me Up. And it's, I mean, classic Go-Go records. And um, before we go... I'm going to throw in one wild card. This group I felt was heavily underrated. Could dance their butts off. Could sing. To me, they're my second favorite group behind New Edition. And I felt they just needed that one pop smash to break them over the top. And I'm talking about Troop. Spread my wings and fly away, Troop. Yes. Yes, indeed. uh, At the time, I was a, a, a troop guy. Troop, uh, I mean, like I said, spread my wings and fly away to a place that I long for. My heart will be the pathway, searching for a love that's evermore. That was that was it right there, 1989 time yeah. frame. Yeah, 89. And, and, and they were in that, 
in that whole kind of new Jack swingish time frame, and in the early part of it, more more guyish. Well, I mean, Teddy Riley, new Jack swing guy, troop, and into the uh, the hip hop part of that. But yeah, troop was dope. Troop was right. dope. Right, and I don't know if you know this, but I interviewed Chucky Booker, and Chucky told me Turned Away was originally supposed to have been a troop record. It sounds like it. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah, so here's the backstory behind it, though. So Chucky played the record for Sylvia Rome, who was head of Atlantic at the time. And she said, mm-hmm. nah, this is going on your album. And he was like, no, I wrote this specifically for Troop. She was like, no, this record's for you. And when he told Troop this, they're like, man, we want a record similar. That's how we get spread my wings. And I interviewed uh, Steve, John John, and Rodney. And all of them confirmed that story. That turned away was originally supposed to go to them. That is dope, bro. You got some history with you, bro. Man, like, like I said, I just try to, you know, do what I can. Just try to preserve and just make sure that people understand and know the history of the music, those who are behind it and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. It's no clickbait, it's no gossip, it's no nothing. It's all about preserving. And the quote, new edition on the intro for the Heartbreak album, just sit back and let me entertain you. That's all I'm gonna say about <laughs> that. So before we close source, do you got any shouts you wanna give and tell the people about how they can hear your podcast and all your socials? All right, well, shout out to you for having me on i appreciate you jumping on um and and even inviting me on i appreciate you sharing your platform um shout outs that's the only shout out you shout out i guess i'll i'll shout out my family shout out to my wife nicole love uh shout out to my daughters my daughters actually today the day we're recording my oldest daughter's first uh the last day of her first year in grad school is today so two more years and uh get this doctorate so thankful for that um my youngest daughter is actually at cornell she's a freshman and shout out to her as well she's a she's also a track athlete and um we'll be going to see her real soon so shout out to her as far as the socials you can catch me on tiktok i live on tiktok now and like that's i'm I'm playing at TikTok, bro. Like, it's where everybody needs to be. I know it. Nobody's gonna listen, but I was late to it, and y'all are later than me. TikTok is where it's at. I'm trying to tell you. Um, but shout out to 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 me, source of course on TikTok, source of course on Instagram, the Source and Company podcast. So you can look up Source and Company on YouTube, uh, Spot Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. But mainly, it's the TikTok. You know, that's where everything is that you would catch from me as far as videos and hip-hop stories and music. I used to rap, for those who don't know, I used to rap back in the day. Under the name Mike Source, group was called Grown Folks. Everything is in my link tree, which is on, I, I think it's on the YouTube. I know it's on the uh instagram and on the tiktok as well all right and you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts on my youtube channel beyond the album cover and it also will be shared on sources platforms ladies and gentlemen mr source live and direct right here 
on Zoom, not at the barbecue. So shout out to Main Source, shout out to Large Professor. <laughs> and once again, one of the greatest intro tracks ever to a young, formerly known as Nasty Nas, who later became Nas. Source, thank you once again, my man, for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir.